Welcome to yet another week of Behind the Lens. Uh, it is Mischief Night, one of my favorite days and nights of the year before Halloween, my favorite holiday. But we're not doing any kind of mischief on Behind the Lens today because we have a really jam-packed show. But we are going to be very bad. We're going to be so bad that we are good because we're going to be talking about bad grandmas today with the fabulous Randall Battenkoff, who, is, who joins us again. Randall, many, all of our regular listeners may recall, Randall was one of my very early guests on the show when uh, talking about his film that he had directed and starred in, 37. Uh, trust me when I say Bad Grandmas is nothing like 37. And, of course, it is also the final film of Florence Henderson, the beloved Carol Brady. However, let me assure you, that her performance in Bad Grandmas is anything but Sweet and Saccharine Carol Brady. And we're going to hear from Randall and some of his me- uh, memories of working with Florence. Also, the film's direct Bad Grandma director. We've got, who do we have? We have Srikant Shalapa, the director of the film and co-writer, will also be joining us today. Uh, so we're in for, you know, a real treat to find out about... Uh, this geriat- uh, these geriatric grandmas who are, you know, real bad, real badasses, so to speak. But before we get to our guest today, let me go ahead and welcome you to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online 24-7 in the U.S. and abroad. But every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And, of course, Pam is, Pam's engineering today, and she's doing something, but I'm not sure what she's doing because what are you doing, Pam? Oh, well, this isn't working, so I can't see it. It's not working. Is Okay, is it our first caller who called early? He called very early. Well... Tell Randall to hold on. <laughs> tell Randall to hold. Well, no, what? I'll tell you what. Let's bring Randall on now. Oh, it's the director? Oh, he's, no. Shrikant is not on until 1130. 1130. Have him call back because we have Randall before that. And we have Eric Pearson to talk about Thor Ragnarok. So, yes, have Shrikant call back at 11.30. This is the joys of live radio. This is also the joys when we book with, with publicists who don't all, <laughs> who are responsible for wrangling their talent. Um, Randall, I wrangle myself because Randall is a friend, so he will be calling at the quarter hour mark, and we will have Shrikant uh, calling in at the half hour mark to talk about bad grandmas. So as soon as Pam, she also answers the phones, people. So anytime you call up, it's Pam you're going to talk to. 
We have that we have that situation rectified, Pam. All right. So then we're going to jump into when she gets back to the soundboard. We're going to jump into Thor Ragnarok in theaters this Friday. This is the third in the Thor films. This is unlike anything you've seen from Thor before, though. Uh, the film is directed by the absolutely fabulous Taika Watiti. And trust me, if you haven't seen any of Taika's other films, I strongly, I can't urge you strongly enough. Go back to some of his very early works. One in particular, Eagle vs. Shark. It is available on Netflix. It will give you a sensibility, uh, an idea of his sense of humor, which really comes into play with the creation of Thor Ragnarok. Of course, we have Thor. Loki is back. We have a new villain named Hela, played by Kate Blanchett. Uh, unlike any villain you've ever seen before, there are incredible effects. We get a lot of the Hulk in this film, which is so nice to see. We get, obviously, some new characters, one of which is uh, the Grandmaster on the planet Sakaar. And uh, the Grandmaster is played by none other, none other than Jeff Goldblum. But to give us a little idea of what Thor Ragnarok is, is like for a writer to jump into, Eric Pearson, this is his first feature. He was working on the Marvel one-shots and also on Agent Carter. So he's no stranger to the Marvel Universe. But Thor is a whole new animal. So take a listen to part of my exclusive interview with Eric Pearson, screenwriter of Thor Ragnarok. It is the adrenaline rush of the year. It is pure ecstasy. I, I wish you could see me smiling right now. It means all I am is a neurotic writer who thinks that everything I do is terrible. So I'm finally starting to believe that people really like this movie and I'm, I could not be more happy about it. I am so in love with this film that, it, <laughs> you know, it is such a deviation from what we saw with the first two Thor movies. That it is a, a drastic deviation. And I think I think just in time, right? I'll tell you, you know, the Thor movies, they were especially Branna. Branna is in his films. He's very particular. It's very exacting. Everything he does has a theatricality and Shakespearean flair to it, which is wonderful. And it did well for setting the tone of Asgard and who these people were. But, yeah. you know, because of the interplay with the Avengers and when you're going toe to toe with Robert Downey Jr.'s, you know, tongue in chief self-deprecation all the time, we want to see that carried over. Because how can you be Thor and interact like that and then go back to Asgard and be straight laced and. It's almost like you were in the room like we were. We talked about that a lot at the very beginning of just like this is. He's been he's been around Downey for two movies now. You think that he hasn't learned sarcasm? Like we were talking about Thor's voice in that in that exact same logic. It was so refreshing, and to have the film actually start out and right from the get go, with him hanging upside down, and you know being tormented by a fire god, uh, it's and it's hilarious. That was the moment that I felt like I, I got on the same page with Taika. Because, like, I met him and I just, you know, I, he's such a unique guy with such a unique point of view and a crazy sense of humor. And we had just met and I, we were suddenly, we had, we had met. It was like, hey, guys, meet. Now, 
Right. <laughs> and when I pitched him that idea of the chain gag, and he, he liked it, I was like, okay, I get it. I get what we're going for here. I will, if this can carry through throughout the movie, then it's going to be great. And great indeed. So, of course, I had to explore with Eric just how do you develop this, uh, tweak this relationship with Thor, Loki, and now bring a new villain into the mix and capture this incredible humor that really escalates and brings a lot of what we've seen in the Avengers now into Thor Ragnarok. Um, this is the first time we really see superheroes who know that superheroes are silly and they know it and they play with that and it's delicious. So clip two, Pam. Now that you've worked with Taika and to see where this humor has gone over the years for him on this explosive level and how totally. he, he visualizes the humor with, yeah. with color, with action. And so much of that stems from your script. And I'm still not buying what people are saying that 80% of the film is improv. I'm glad. I'm glad you're not because I, I don't I don't think that's true. I think that there was a lot of there's a lot of fun to be had and improving to be done. And Tiger certainly encourages that. But I mean, as as the uh, custodian of the document, I always kind of just felt a little I don't know put up by that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I keep hearing people talk about that. You cannot have a film with this kind of depth this many characters and subplots occurring without a script. You cannot improv that. I agree with you. I'm glad that you see it. I'm so glad that you see it. I hope that everybody kind of can see it like that. It was hard work to get this thing uh, ready to go, and we were on a real time crunch when I, when I started working on it. How much time did you have once you started working on it? I started uh, January 1st of 2016. It was, a, it was a treatment in by the 28th of January and a full script by the 24th of February. You know, they were shooting in July and uh, basically starting over, except for, you know, there were definitely things that they knew were going to happen. They, they were casting Kate Blanchett as Hela. They knew Hela was going to be the villain. They knew that the Planet Hulk kind of storyline would be involved. Uh, they decided to shatter the hammer. So there were, there were things, there were signposts to guide, but uh, yeah, it was it was intense. And I remember turning it in and feeling so relieved to have, have done it and then realizing I hadn't read it. <laughs> I turned it in. And then the next, because I, you know, every, every uh, day when I start, I, I would, you know, read the previous five pages to kind of get myself into a groove. And then I turned it in, and I went out and had drinks with friends because I was just needed some sort of relief. And I was like, I, know, I haven't read the whole script yet. I hope it's good. <laughs> and then, but then I started getting positive feedback, and and once it was all there, I, I did a good enough job on the first first draft, I guess, for us to get get in there and start honing it, and uh, especially working with Taika to get his his you know very unique kind of comedy flourishes in there. Mm -hmm. You know, something that really is that stands out in here that I really appreciated is we really develop and see a different side of the Thor-Loki sibling relationship, but then you have to expand that sibling relationship and add Hela. Well, to the first part, I would just, I, I have to really credit Hemsworth a lot for, because uh, the Thor-Loki relationship is some of my favorite stuff in, in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. 
to be honest, like my 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 first draft going or my my draft going into production, I uh, was feeling okay about it and and feeling pretty good. And one day, Hemsworth just kind of pulled me aside and said, "Hey, can we come? Can we talk about these scenes?" And he was talking about the Thor Loki stuff, and he very correctly pointed out that I I was retreading some ground from. Uh, the previous movies, you know, they've, they've had so many interactions that the audience has been privy to it, Thor, Dark World, and Avengers. Uh, and he was right. He was, uh, that I, that I kind of went into that rut a bit more. And he, he helped kind of, we had a couple of sessions with, uh, myself, Tyka, Hemsworth, and, and Brad, the, the producer, to just talk about the relationship and, and really add in a level of kind of self-awareness. Uh, so it wasn't just more Loki, this is madness, kind of Loki tricks him and then he gets tricked. Uh, it was it was really great. It was one of those, thank God he's the movie star moment because not only does he look like Thor and he's a good actor and he's funny, but he's smart with the script and he helped us bring that relationship to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the, the hell of thing is, is just, I, we were almost kind of, something that Taika liked to joke about from the comics is when we were first sitting down and talking is kind of this, you know, subterranean layer of violence in the Asgardian society. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd open these comics and they'd be brutally conquering some, you know, world and then they'd be in a tavern joking about it over ale and then the story would start and it's like, well, what about those guys that you were just ruthlessly conquering? So having Hela kind of represent this, what actually built the, the empire of Asgard and also wanted to give her a justified point of view was really important of this is how she was raised, this is what it meant to be an Asgardian to her. Anything else would be less than. It was, we wanted to really find that kind of drive that put her in direct opposition to the, you know, idealistic way that Thor had been raised and, and you know, we're benevolent, we take care of, the nine realms were kind of these uh, golden gods sitting on the throne. Uh, Hela is kind of the, all the skeletons in the basement, literally. Going back to Thor and Loki for a minute, be, what you did here is because, and I guess when Hemsworth got you out of the rut, we have all of those scenes where you think Loki is is up to his old tricks again, but Thor's already on to it, so he throws the things at him, and he knows it's a hologram, and so we actually get to see superheroes that know that superheroes are silly, that they know their own backstory, and now they're having fun with it. Yeah, and also, and like that's also just one of those moments that I'd love to point out is you know from from your movie star is, is talking about it because we knew that there was going to be this scene where Loki's illusion visits him in the in the cells of Sakaar. And uh, we were just, we were talking about it, and uh, it was kind of like, you know, well, I don't want to say anything. Like, what do I have to say to him? He's screwed up my whole, like, life, uh, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what, do you, what if you say nothing? What if you, and it was this moment, and he was, like, perfect. So it was just a great moment of an actor being like, yeah, I'll take no lines. I'll take zero lines because that's right how it works for the character and it was it was part of this mentality that i i figured out in these conversations of of uh loki can't beat thor straight up in a fight he's not strong enough he has to trap him Mm -hmm. well 
Thor can't beat Loki in a conversation straight up. He's not clever enough. He has to trap him. So that kind of the it's it's Thor's evolution in his relationship with his brother. He's not going to just let Loki lure him in uh, and and get into these kind of shouting matches again. He knows he he knows what Loki's trying for from the beginning, and he's got to he's got to find his own way to trap him, which he does a couple times in the movie that I think are are really great and I think ultimately too they kind of force Loki to have his own little uh, moment of growth that, uh, that that provides a helpful turn for the heroes in the end mm-hmm. this is this is, feels like the, the most uh, authentic version of the, their brotherhood mm-hmm. including all like not only the kind of the, the positive love and hope but it's also like the pettiness and the, the, the lameness of, of being around your brother and kind of like the dashed hopes of, of when Thor's uh, I thought the I thought we were going to be together forever mm-hmm. and he's having to grow up and say no I'm realizing now it's stupid of me to hold on to that childish dream we're, we're adults now and yes they are adults and you can hear and read more of my interview with Eric Pearson later this week on BehindTheLensOnline.net and a few other places uh, and Please see Thor Ragnarok in theaters this Friday. It is amazing. I love this film so much. Well, right now, someone else I love so much and something I love so much is the wonderful Randall Battenkoff is with us. Hello, my friend. Hello, Debbie Lynn. How are you? I'm fine, my darling. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while. It has, and you've been so busy. I've been busy. You're always busy. Well... Not always, but uh, I had a good little run here working on this movie. This is Bad Grandmas. Oh, my. This is, you already know. I mean, I think that it is hilarious. I laughed my myself silly watching this film. It's a hoot. I, I know. It's, what did you think when you get a script like Bad Grandmas and you see you've got Pam Greer attached, you've got, Judge Reinhold attached, and you've got Florence Henderson, Carol Brady in this script. Does I it... couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe they got her. <laughs> I mean, this is like the complete opposite of, of everything we know about Florence Henderson. You, you know, think, how can she do this? Uh, yeah, she it, does. <laughs> With a plum. I mean, she's incredible in the movie. You know, it didn't surprise me. I saw her. She performed at a benefit for Stage LA a couple years ago. And she went off with this raucous body number, um, yep. the mama number out of Chicago. And she's got whips and, you know, a bevy of guys. And she's, you know, all in black leather, a whole S&M thing going on. And the whole audience, oh my God. the whole audience was in shock. And she was, <laughs> she was eating. That's her. Up. I mean, that's yeah. Florida. She's, she's a firecracker. So, she loves to push the boundaries, and I think she kind of, uh, you know, exploits the fact that everyone thinks she's sweet little Miss Apple Pie. She's she's n- she's not that at all. I mean, she, well, actually, she is she is that as well, but it's not the full package. I mean, she uh, she enjoys herself from day one. <laughs> actually, I showed up uh, in St. Louis. I think around ten thirty at night. I got in very late checked into the hotel, and as I was walking up to my room, I ran into Florence and Pam. I'd never met either of them before and said, hi, you know, I'm Randall. I'm playing uh, sheriff. They had a bottle of wine, and they said, hey, you want to come and uh, 
come up to the room and party. <laughs> I was like, holy Toledo. <laughs> I, uh, sadly, I, I, I didn't, uh, I was tired. I was like, you know what, let's do it another night, which is a big, a big fumble on my behalf. But those girls were ready to party. I mean, and have a good time. And, and when you showed up on the set, they were spot on, you know, no line flubbing. I mean, just professionals through and through. But, but both really had an incredible zest for life. And, um, I mean, sad, so sad. I mean, it's, sh- it's so shocking that Florence, uh, you know, died so unexpectedly. And uh, especially after seeing this person was full of vitality and energy. And, uh, I mean, it's, it, I think it was shocked, shocked everybody. Yeah, um, yeah that was the, the horrible thing that, you know, obviously is that you get so close to somebody like that and become, you know, very close quickly. Um, and then they're gone. So you just every day is a blessing. You never know when it's going to come to an end. Well, and but it's amazing that we have her in this film and to to share what you know. You can see these last few months of her life, what what she was like. It's uh, it's all up on the screen, which is great. Well, and we also get to see a different side of you. We don't often get to see you playing a role like like Sheriff or Detective Randall McLemore. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's true. Uh, this this is something that's it's very different for you as well. It's yeah, very tongue in cheek. It is. You know what did you when you read the script and you saw what this role would entail? You know, did that jump out at you because it would be a challenge? It would be something new that you hadn't done. Um. You know, I played some really silly characters early on in my uh, career, like when I did Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, and I played uh, Buffy's dumb boyfriend, Jeffrey. Yeah, and you were. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's face it. I, you know. So I kind of miss that. I, I, I think that uh, inherently I love to play really far-out characters, so anytime I have a chance to really go outside of the boundaries of, of my own personality, I, I, I love it, because you can just be silly and do kind of stupid things, and... And it works for the for the role. So, for me, it was uh, a great opportunity to try to uh, sort of get back in touch with that silly side of of myself that loves to play goofy characters. And this was a, an amazing opportunity. Well, and and the way that that you go about and the physicality that you put into the character that really impressed me because anybody that knows you, anybody that's seen you off screen. You know, you you know, you have stature. You have a, a nice gait, and here you get kind of schlumpy, and you're trying to put a swagger on that. <laughs> it looks funny. It looks funny, so it just yeah. adds even more to the character yeah. proper. That's cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, Shrikant, the director, really sort of. Uh, he was encouraging me to keep pushing those boundaries. He he liked it. He's like, I love what you're doing. Just keep doing it, and go even further. You know, uh, some of the like the walking, uh, uh, the garage. When I see uh, some some body parts, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, some of that stuff's really funny. I, I so. mean, let's face it. I mean, we're we're not giving away any spoilers when we tell people that bad grandmas little literally are for bad grandmas. They're trying to help a friend of theirs, and just inadvertently, people kind of end up dead. And, you know, what do you do yeah. when you're a grandma? You, you get a saw, you get a knife out of the kitchen, and you <laughs> cut up body parts, and you put them in saran wrap and put them in a freezer. 
I, you know, That's right. I just very, very. Kind of, ha- it happened. It kind of was just happening very randomly. They were just getting into more and more trouble, but they were doing. You know, they were just trying to protect themselves from the from these horrible people in society, and, and who, who overlook old people and treat them like crap. That's and see that's that's something that I really liked in the script itself, because there is that message, that underlying message. This is not just some kind of slapstick, farcical kind of film. There is that great message there about how seniors are typically treated. I know it's horrible, and but they don't get enough respect, and no. they're powerful. They can be incredibly powerful. <laughs> uh, and yes, that's what the, I think the movie is. The core message is that you better respect your elders. <laughs> but if you it, don't, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna kick, kick your butt. Yeah, and, and do worse than that. Something that's really, really, I found interesting within the film, the visual aids within the film that all of you are utilizing. It's just everyday household stuff that you just pick up, and it all becomes part of crime scenes that, unfortunately, somebody overlooks. That's right. That's right. Especially moderately incompetent sheriffs who think they're very, very, very savvy, like my character. Well, and of course, then you also get to play opposite Judge Reinhold, who plays, uh, you know, our leading con man, Harry. That's right. And he That's also right. just goes for broke with, uh, the, with the comedy. Yep. He certainly did. He didn't pull any punches either. He was having a hoot. You know, I mean, that that comes across on every level here. Everybody was having so much fun. Yeah, we with did. We had, a, we had a blast. We were treated well. We had a blast. I mean, you know, I actually shared a trailer a dressing room with Florence and, and Pam on occasion. Oh, God. It was basically me, uh, uh, Florence, and, and Susie Wall, mm-hmm. and um, Sal Eaton. So it was, it was me and the four, four, four gals. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, changing in front of me. It was crazy. It was wild. It was a wild ride. Oh, my God. And you will you have that distinction for the rest of your life. That's that right. You were in. No, it was a great, it was a great opera. I couldn't believe it. I got the phone call. They just said, hey, do you want to be in this movie? I was like, what? You got oh. the right guy here? Oh, my God. But, yeah, it was cool. But, you know, you've also, you also have something else of distinction on your resume because you also played Hugh Hefner. Some years ago, I did, and I think I, I think yours was the very first time anybody played half on screen. Um, I don't. I think you might be right, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's possible. It wasn't yep. until much later when people started actually doing films and throwing in the character. But the Playboy, you, yeah, that's right. But that's right. They were talking about doing a big uh, feature film on Hef, and they just hadn't gotten around to it. I know uh, Nicolas Cage had uh, been looking at that part, and he actually, I ran into him at a at a car race, and he came up to me and said that he loved my portrayal of Hef. That was that was a highlight. It was like he had just won the Oscar the year before, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, thanks so much, man!" But it so, is. yeah, that was an amazing part. That was a great part too. And you don't get too many parts like this. You know, they don't come along, uh, along too often. So you take them when you can get them. You know, and of course we lost half not too long ago I, as well. I know. Horrible. I, I, I don't know. Is it everybody works with Randall and then we lose them? Oh, boy. Well, I worked with, you know, my thing with Hef was 13 years ago, That's so you true. can't hold me accountable No, no, not accountable. But actually, you worked, it was amazing, your cast in Hefner Unauthorized, 
You had Rebecca Herbst playing Barbie uh, Barbie Benton. Rebecca, of course, yep. has now been on General Hospital forever. Yeah. Um, and you had uh, Natasha Gregson Wagner, um, Rebecca yep. Romain. Uh, That's right. So you really, you were in great company there with that. I remember when that TV movie came out. Because it, it was yeah, just... it's actually playing, it's playing in Greece right now. Really? And there's a European version of the film, and that's the one you want to see. Oh, really? Worth, worth watching, yeah. Okay. So I know they're trying to get it out in the States here, but uh, it, it just played on, on USA Network a few times. Oh. A few, a few times. They, they, would, they would put it on rotation every few years. I think it's, it's been a while since they played it last, but I know they're trying to bring it back here. So maybe... Uh, Audiences will be able to catch it here as well. Well, and I think I think the time is right now. Now that Hef has passed, and there is, I mean, there's a resurgence of interest in him. So yeah. I, I think so. But yeah, you know, something something I want to ask you is, you know, having come off of Thirty Seven and directing that as a first time feature director, now you're working with Shrikant and Bad Grandma's his first feature film directing. Yep. That's right. How you did would, a great job. I was going to say, how would, you, how would you gauge, you know, the experience and compare it to your own experience oh, as a director? Well, he was smart enough not to star in the movie. <laughs> that was my first mistake. It's just so much, just, it's just so hard to, to act in almost every scene and direct at the same time. It's just taking on too much. Uh, it was an amazing opportunity, and I learned so much doing it. But uh, I don't necessarily recommend doing that. So he he had the luxury of just being able to direct, mm-hmm. and he really had a great vision, I think, of, of what he wanted to accomplish. So I think a lot of the visual stuff that he, he does in the film is pretty impressive. Uh, we had some be- beautiful visuals in our film too in '37, um, but that wasn't really my number one priority. And not that it was his either, but just the the visual palette. Mm-hmm. I think he really uh, focused on and, and and executed on. Well, and and you know your visual palette, the cinematography in '37. You know how much amazing. I love yeah. it. It's it's absolutely stunning. But yeah, yeah, that's true. And as you mentioned, with Shrikant with Bad Grandmas, it's a very distinct visual palette. His is more about color. That's right. Whereas that's thir- right. Thirty-seven, yours was much more about emotional tonal bandwidth and mood. Mm-hmm. You're right. Wow, you're so astute. <laughs> you are. <laughs> <laughs> You should review movies. Uh, you think? You know your stuff. Yeah, you know your stuff. <laughs> I got a new movie I'm prepping uh, right yeah. now. I can't really talk about it, but I'm going to tell you it's going to be amazing. It's, uh, now, are you directing? I'm directing this one, and I'm just directing it yet. I get to see it? Oh, yeah. I You'll get see to... this one. You're going to love it. Are you shooting locally? Mm, to be determined. If you're shooting locally, do I get to come on set? Oh, of course. Oh, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Kidding me? And you know, I'll do, and you know, I'll do all your Q and A's for you. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got two. Uh, I miss you those have, days. You've I miss got those days. You have two other films coming up. You've got Last Champion and Driver X coming out too. 
That's right. I think uh, Driver X is actually playing now uh, in some festivals. It's going to be in St. Louis this weekend, and that's also we're premiering Bad Grandmas in St. Louis this weekend. So if anyone's in St. Louis, I know you can you can get some tickets and show up. Uh, sadly, I don't know the name of the theater, but it's at, it's part of the St. Louis Film Festival. And uh, Driver X, Patrick Fabian starring, will be playing as well. So you can catch me in two movies in St. Louis. And uh, Bad Ch- uh, The Last Champion is a movie I did with my buddy Cole Hauser, Glenn Withrow, mm-hmm. a very talented actor also, uh, directed his first feature. And it's, uh, this is a powerful story, a great, a great movie about a disgraced uh, wrestler who becomes a, basically a coach to redeem himself. And I play the, the banker in town who sort of has him in my uh, tentacles. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. So I play a bad guy in this one. I'm not a good guy in this one. It's pretty, but it's a, another really juicy part. You know, so, what is this? You're getting these really juicy parts. I, I don't know. It's because I'm getting older. They're getting me finally out of all these preppy roles I played. Well, that's good. You know, someone wrote that I play these preppy types, but I, that's not that's not who I really am. I mean, I went to prep school, so I guess <laughs> you know that's how I got into school ties. And <laughs> no, but see, the got thing is, you, you're so well preserved. You look so young. That is the problem. So what should I do about that, Debbie? Should I just? I I don't know. What should I do. I, I that I don't have an answer to. Would you rather would you rather just jump into really meaty roles right away or would you rather stay well preserved? I'd rather a great question. You know what? If you could guarantee me the meaty roles, I'd I'd give up the well preserved. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're definitely I mean and I really it's gonna think, happen eventually. And I really think by you by starring in thirty seven and directing it, I think that really marked a shift for you. Because, I think so too. Because that really showed you know, directors, producers, what you can do, your, your utter and complete immersion and depth of range in that film. It's still, it is, it is one of your best performances. And I, I really think. I'm most proud of it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Not, sadly, not many people have seen it, you know, well, not not many people in it and it's on Amazon and you can watch it for free if you're a prime member. So, well, that's good to know. Now, did it ever make it onto Blu-ray or DVD? It, uh, it did. It did. It's, it's, it's at Target now. They're selling it at Target, and it was in Redbox for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, it's gotten out there. It's, it's playing in Scandinavia and in China and Taiwan, and um, Greece has just bought it as well. So it's it's... In the UK and Australia, it's getting out there. Let's just say it's slowly getting out there. And people, uh, I, I read some review about some some people who, actually, well, one review reviewer said that they were contemplating suicide, and they saw thirty seven, and they decided not to do it. So I was like, oh, you know what? That's enough. If one, per- if I could save one person, that's, that's good that's... enough for me. I don't. And and um, we had unbelievable reactions from from audience wow. members, as, as you may recall. Oh, I know. People just absolutely loved it. I know. You I know. just uh, wish we had some money to really push the movie. We just sadly, I, I just didn't get our distributor to really back it financially. So it's just sort of out there 
for people to find, but it, it's out there and people do talk about it and do love it when they see it. So, well, now that Hopefully. I know, now that I know it's at Target, because yeah. I've been looking everywhere because I want to own it. I want to have oh. it. Oh, by the way, yes, do you want to give away uh, copies of it to your listeners? I mean, I have about a uh, hundred copies right now. If you want to, if your listeners want to see the movie, why don't we, you give the first hundred people? Call in or do you do a contest and you give away thirty seven? I got a hundred copies for you. Why? Okay. Why? Do, why don't we do that? We'll do it. They can go to. I'll get something set up on the website, but also, and then everybody, the first, the they can email to prodigy. Uh, they can email to behind the lens online uh, at prodigy. Yeah, prodigy dot net. Yeah, I think it's BTL Radio Show or Behind Lens, or just go to the BTL Radio Show Twitter account. And whoever okay. and whoever tweets about you being on the show today or retweets what I've already posted, the first thirty-seven people will give will give free free DVDs to. Okay, that sounds good. And I'm going to send you a box of DVDs so you have them. Well, that's so nice of you. You just want to yeah. get, you want to get them out of your house. <laughs> no, I actually, you know what? I I got plenty of people who want them, but I'd love for you to to. Yes. To your listeners and be great. Well, and then I will get something up on the website so people can go there to find out. Um, but yeah, we'll do it that way. They can go on to Twitter. They can go to BTL Radio Show. They can retweet. They can mention that they heard you today. Great. Or they can even do it on Movie Shark D. They can go to either one. And, I love it. And we'll do it that way. Now. Great. Now, I got to ask you because we have Shrikant on the other on the other line. You want to stay on Shrikant. and talk? Do you want to stay on and talk to him? <laughs> it's, up, hey, it's up to you. It's up to you. No, it's, it's, your show. it's up to you. If if you want to oh. stay on and speak with while he's on too, that's fine with me. Uh, sure, let's do it. Okay, Pam, can you connect? Okay, that's one thing I've never mastered is collect, is connecting multiple lines myself live. Okay, Shrikant. Yes, I'm here. Well, hi. Welcome to Behind the Lens. And a friend of yours is also on the line. Oh, great. Shrikan. I thought I heard him in the background. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Shrikan, how are you, buddy? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, are you going to be coming Long time. Oh, thank you. Long time. I miss you, man. It's been way too long. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. In a while. Uh, I didn't want to really crash this party, but Debbie Lynn said, hey, do you want to be on the call? So I said, hey, sh- sure, but <laughs> Shrikant, feel free to kick me off any time. You're the director. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's your show. I don't want to rain no, on your parade. Well, now that, yeah. that begs the big question, Shrikant, is how well did Randall take direction on the set of Bad Grandmas? You know, I have... Here's the thing. I'm not a very nitpicky director, so I didn't really have any specific nitpicky things I really wanted him to do. I gave him a broad sense of the character I had in mind, you know, like a modern-day Pink Panther-ish type of um, character um, set in the South, and I let him run with it. And I think he did a great job, you know, adding his own nuances to the character and behavior set really accentuated it. I think I would have done a lot of disservice if I had actually given him more direction than I should have. Um, so I think um, from uh, from working with Randall, I would love to work with him again. Well, yeah, yeah, likewise. 
you know, and you you have veterans. You have an amazing cast on the whole. In addition to Randall, you get Florence Henderson. You get Pam Greer. You've got Judge Reinhold. This is an embarrassment of riches for you as a first-time feature director. It's an embarrassment of riches for any director. You know, mm-hmm. how, how did you go about, first of all, you're co-writer of the script. So where did this story come from, and what led you to this talented bunch to comprise your cast? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, even though this was my first directorial feature, I had produced um, you know, four other films before that. Uh, in some capacity, I was a writer, but most of them, I was a lead producer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had experience working with, you know, many actors. Probably not the caliber we are talking about here, though. I mean, this was obviously an exceptional caliber, and I was really lucky to to, to have this opportunity. But I, saw, I, I had some experience of working with actors in the sense of, you know, working with my director and making sure we are getting the film we want. Um but in terms of this movie itself, I'm sorry? Oh, no, go ahead. Okay. In this movie itself, you know, I was, uh, I was writing this movie after I got an idea sitting at my, you know, ex, my ex-mother-in-law's house out in, the, out in the boonies of St. Louis, where she used to get together with her, um, her, her, her friends and sisters to play cards every Saturday night, and, you know, they're in their 60s and 70s, and I was thinking about that one day when I was watching them play. I'm like, you know, these sweet old ladies could be murderers, and nobody would ever know. You know, they're all church-going, nice um, ladies, and, and that gave me this idea of this Cohen-esque style of uh, storyline story where I thought I would write a story where they indeed are murderers, but obviously I want them to paint, them, paint themselves them as very good kind of murderers, right, where they're killing the bad people, not the good guys. Um, so that's where the plot started, and I just kind of wrapped my head around, okay, how do I make this into a feature? So it was really organic from that point on in terms of how I came up with the idea and then wrote it, wrote it into a script. And then what led you to your cast? You know, d- did you know right away? Did you have an idea of who you wanted? I mean, I, it's very surprising that Randall is not the first person I would have thought of for the role of the sheriff. Florence Henderson is mm-hmm. not the first person I would have thought of for Mimi. Yet right. your cast right. is perfection. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I think it was my casting director who did a fantastic job um, in, in many ways. But I did write this script with, I will say, I did write the script with Pam Greer's role in mind. You know, I've always loved Pam Greer. So I wrote the Coralie's part with her in mind, you know, and I was lucky to get it. How often does that happen? It's very, very rare, especially for a first-time director on a, you know, a small-budget film like ours. Um, on the lead character, you know, I had a couple of names I had in mind. Uh, didn't quite work out because, you know, obviously we were shooting in St. Louis, which was not an easy commute for uh, many of the individuals in that age group. Um, and so Florence Henderson was one of my top five choices, I would say. And then he read the script and loved that. And I was, I was actually surprised pleasantly. That she loved it, and I was thinking this would be a great counter countercasting because she wouldn't be the one you would think of as bad grandmas, right? Mm-hmm. You think of her as a good grandma, and I thought that'd be really awesome to cast her in the counter um, in a counter role, and that's how that came about. But Judge Reinhold kind of was an uh, also similar similar concept because he's 
generally been a good character, except for a couple of movies in the 90s where he did play um, it's kind of a uh, you know, funny villain. Mm-hmm. One of the movies with Danny DeVito. I forgot the name of the movie. Um, but, uh, you know, that came about, and I thought that would be a good name to have. And he hasn't been around much lately in the last probably decade, actually, or over. Um, so that would be a good name to get back into the scene because I'm a huge Beverly Hills uh, you know, cop fan, and I always liked him in those, in those films. So I think in, in a sense, I was really lucky. I think the script was good enough to attract the caliber of actors uh, we are talking about here for a first-time you know, budget, uh, low-budget director. But I, I think I just lucked out in, in many ways. And, of course, what led you to Randall? You know, Randall came... <laughs> Yeah, you know, Jack, I, mean, right? I didn't actually know much about Randall beforehand. Um, so I was searching for a good, solid actor in that role. And the casting director really recommended, highly recommended Randall. And then I saw some of his pictures and I saw, you know, I mean, I've seen him before in movies, but I don't really recall him very much. And then I thought this would be a great uh, face and, and the role based on his previous role. And I just kind of trusted my gut and uh, my casting director's choice in, in doing that. And I, I think, I, I, like I said, I, I really lucked out in that sense because Randall brought so much more to the character than I could have ever written into the script. Oh, well, I agree. Thank I, you, Srikan. I appreciate that. I absolutely agree. But I got to ask both of you, there's a great scene where Randall's character is up in a tree. Did you really make <laughs> him go up in a tree? <laughs> he did. He did go up in the tree. You really yeah. climbed the tree? Of course. That was Shrikan. That was your idea, right? That was your yeah, idea. That was my idea. Yeah, that was one of those Pink Panther-esque type of move that I thought would be nice touch. You know, we, <laughs> we kind, of, kind of did that on the spot. You know, it wasn't in the script. It was something we were thinking about. I thought it would be funny to have him do that because there would be something that I would expect, you know, Pink Panther to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I my. think I said, Shrikan, are you sure about this? I don't know. I think I was a little hesitant, and you were like, no, just do it, just do it. Meanwhile, Debbie well, Lynn, she she got back to me. She said, hey, Rana, great performance, but did you really have to climb the tree? <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, you were actually thinking about climbing the roof of the house next to it, too. Oh, that that would have made it maybe a little more sense. <laughs> oh. But again, my character didn't have too much sense. You know, He wasn't really that sensical of a guy. You know, I've got to ask both you guys because that some to do that the whole tree climbing thing, sitting up in the tree, that was you know in the moment decision to do that. How much improvisation was there within this film? Because as you know, comedy in and of itself is always very difficult to execute properly because of timing and whatnot. So, how yeah. much latitude did you have for improv for moments like Randall climbing a tree? I mean, Srikant was great with that. He would, if you had an idea, he would let you go with it. So I had one idea where I, the whole line where I say, where the hell did I put my car? <laughs> that was my idea. And I don't, it just popped into my head. And I said, hey, Srikant, I got an idea. I'd love to not remember where I put my car. And he said, okay, let's try it. And so we tried it and it worked. I think it's one of the best moments in the movie. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So much of the film feels very spur of the moment, but so natural. And the way that the ladies in particular, the way they deadpan everything, it just makes it so much funnier. Their comedic timing 
and their comedic skills. Absolutely. I was so impressed with them collectively. Yeah, they were brilliant. Mm-hmm. The ladies were great. You know, they were phenomenal. Before you came on the line, Srikant, uh, Randall and I were talking about cinematography and first-time directing, uh, comparing his first directorial experience with 37 and this experience for you on Bad Grandmas. And something uh, that is very notable that Randall brought up, and I totally agree, is the visual look of Bad Grandmas. What you mm-hmm. and your DP, Chris Benson, have done with color and making use of color through the production, through Gypsy Pate's production design and art direction. How did you come up with the color palette and the color scheme that you did? It's really risky to pick a green like that and have it <laughs> so predominant within your film, number one. Yeah. And then lighting and lensing for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, there were very specific choices, actually. So I had, I was influenced by this movie set in South Georgia. So I wanted, like, in the summer. So I said, think of Georgia summer. You know, flowers in bloom, colors everywhere. So that was one big inspiration. There's a lot of flowers and colors because of that. Um, The other thing that influenced me was having a retro look. You know, I wanted to have a look where they would have lived in this house for 40, 50 years and never have changed the house pretty much, right? So I was thinking about so what does what does that look like? So that's more in the, you know, the 60s, 70s probably. A lot of teal and those rounded refrigerators, um, things of this nature. So I had a lot of that and a lot of knickknacks um, was part of that deal as well. So that was a very conscious choice. I wanted to make the film look like it was set in the 60s and 70s, but it's actually still, it's today, you know, because they're driving these older cars, really some of these classic cars. Um, and everybody's driving a classic car in the movie, actually, pretty much, um, except for you, Randall. But um, right. there's, because, you know, you're here. I was supposed to, though. You gave away my car. You gave Judge my yeah. car. I was not happy about that. I'm still a little upset. That is true. That is true. Yeah, we'll that was my car. I was supposed to have the cool black car, and then all of a sudden I ended up with the white car. I didn't like it. No, you would have done better with a yeah. black car. I agree with you, Randall. Yeah, that was, a, that was a decision I had to make. for. Judge wanted it, and that was the end of the story. Judge said, it's my car. I'm the bad guy. I get the car. And but, you know, having the, end of me. having the bad guy drive a white car really would have added another whole tonal layer to the story. <laughs> yeah. We should have checked with Debbie Lynn. Shriek out, we should have brought her in. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I could have, maybe an older white car, because, you know, the bad guy does own a car shop and he fixes a car. So maybe that or something newer. But anyway, the film is done now, so. <laughs> <laughs> in the sequel, um, right? He's, he's got a sequel going. Debbie Lynn, there's a sequel in store. Is there a sequel in store? Um, yeah, at least it's in my store. I don't know how, how well that store is out, but um, it's um, it's something I've been thinking about, you know, aftermath, especially with you know Florence gone. Um, I wanted to actually spin that into the story too. You know, mm-hmm. have, you know, obviously I would explain why one person is missing. So, but I do have a really good idea for for a sequel that I think would be equally funny, if not funnier. Um, but I don't know. We'll see how this film does. Oh, I would love. I would right. I can tell you right now. I would love a sequel of this film, and you know, with Florence's character of Mimi gone, if you're spinning that in, 
you know, we could always have Randall's, you know, Randall McLemore take up that extra space and be embraced by the remaining grandmas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, definitely. I think that's uh, something I've been thinking about. I just uh, need to find some time to write that down, um, write the script down. But I've got a synopsis and all of that stuff uh, ready to go. Yeah. Um, How did you approach the, but, cin- um, the cinematography, though, with right. Chris? Well, you know, I was very much inspired by Coen Brothers' style of filmmaking for this mm-hmm. film. It's very much what a Coen's style of storytelling. Uh, at least that's how I wanted to get it out there. And I also was inspired by some of their older films where they use wide angle, wide lenses, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at Roger Deakins' uh, style of cinematography where he would use these lenses that they were like really wide lenses, like 18 and 24 uh, wide lenses. And I did a lot of that in the film where I would get the entire cast in one frame mm-hmm. right? and with, with very few cuts. I mean, there are a few cuts in the film more than I would have wanted because I had to make the film work. Uh, to give it some speed, but I wanted to have a wide angle where you can see a lot in one lens, you know, and a lot of lenses where the where the characters are actually so close in, so you can see their faces almost covering half the screen, but then the other half has people in the distance. You know? mm-hmm. um, so things like that, which are very much a Roger Deakins style of cinematography, where I'm using like an 18 millimeter lens, um, and uh, the characters are really literally like three or four inches from the lens, actually, when we, when we were shooting. So they were so close that they couldn't even move their face without hitting the lens. Wow. No, I mean, it looks fabulous. And I do like the wider angle because it really, especially for the interiors, because we get the entire sense of Mimi's home. You, you have them all mm-hmm. sitting at the table and you have the entire background of the kitchen from one side to the other. Everything is there. And that tells us immediately just looking at that background, who this woman is. Her whole life unfolds in one frame. Mm-hmm. And yep. I really like that, rather than doing, not, rather than doing coverage cuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice touch. Yeah, I didn't want to make the film a very fast-paced film. You know? That was one of the things I was trying to avoid. I wanted to have some sort of a deliberate pace in the film, which I hope it came through... Um, but you know, I'm too close to the film to make that call. No, I think your I think your pacing is is, you know, it's right on, it's spot on for this. You have some from frenetic moments, but at the same time, you take into account in the execution of the scenes where there are action scenes with the ladies. There, it's naturally slowed down because we move a little. You know, we're moving a little slower. The knees are a little <laughs> sluggish. Can't can't get the the finger in the trigger properly, and that you have a pause that's physically built in because of their performance movements. Yeah, and I just I really like that because it, it's a nice counter to what we're seeing with Macklemore with his antics or with Harry's antics. So it really you you strike a good balance there. I think. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. Yeah, I'm now. Good job, Shrikant. Well, he hired Chris you. Chris Benson, thanks. Y- you know, he hired you yeah. to start with, so that was already a good job. That's right. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, my job is just to hire the right people and just sit back and have them do the work, right? <laughs> that's, that's, 
that's my style. I'm like that. That worked really well. But I got to make sure I have like people. In this case, I think I totally, totally lucked out with, you know, what phenomenal performances by ladies and by Randall. You know, that was really, really nice. You know, to I'm, have that opportunity. You know, because I have both of you together, and you know, Randall, you've directed one feature film. Srikant, you've now directed one feature film. I'm curious because so many filmmakers and industry people do listen to the show. Um, I'd like to ask each of you about what would be the greatest lesson you each learned as a first-time feature filmmaker, director, that if you had to impart some wisdom on somebody else following that same path, what lesson did each of you learn that, that you would pass along? You got to build a team of people that you trust and like. I think that would be the most important thing. You really kind of get to know your team before you jump in and make a movie and really just know that you're going to be spending years of your life working on the project. So you better really love the subject matter because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And what about for you, Srikant? You know, my thing is I read this somewhere, uh, and I followed this, and it really helped me, is, is casting is basically more, than, more or less half or more of the film, right? And if you spend enough time working on the casting, your film will take care of itself in many ways. Um, so I spent a lot of time casting. I took six months to cast this film um, with many actors and talking to And even, even the backgrounds and extras and, you know, the other... Uh, smaller characters I have. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time. I probably went through hundred, uh, hundreds of people actually for this, for some of these smaller roles, because I wanted to have that look that I wanted in the film, or at least that, or the performance or the nuances they will give in the film. To me, if you if you you do that right, the film gets so much more from these actors um, that you can never possibly write or direct uh, on the screen on the on the set. Um, the other thing that I do a lot of, and I've done it in my other films in the past, is really making sure the script is as about as tight as you can get before mm-hmm. you jump into the film. You know, a lot of first-time directors get into the film with like a second or third version of their script, and I mean, I think that's really a bad idea. You know, you really should tighten your script to the extent you can. You know, I I, I think mine was like a 17th rewrite before I jumped into this film. Wow. Um, for this one. Well, now for you, being an actor, Randall, how, you know, based on what Srikant is saying about the script and having it tight, is that something that you like and appreciate as an actor? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you don't want to really have to be figuring out uh, the script when you're shooting. Uh, oftentimes, it, it can be improved upon. Actors, of course, have their own inputs, and when you're shooting, it can come up and I think a, a good director is, is going to be open to ideas. But for the most part, I mean, you want, if, if you can get to the place where everybody's on board with the script and loves where it's at, then there's just less, uh, one less thing to worry about, which is having to change it and make it better. And the performances can, be, can, can add so much, and there are nuances that are going to show up and surprises that are going to make it more special. But... Uh, if you're working the script itself out and the story out uh, while you're shooting, uh, you got a problem. Mm. 
Well, gentlemen, we are almost out of time today. This has been just so much fun. I mean, I love Bad Grandmas so much. I admit, I watched it twice already. I have to. Wow. See, I have to see it again. It's cool. it's not often when you get a movie that you can sit there and just laugh and have a good time with, and you really can with Bad Grandmas. And of course, just seeing Florence Henderson in her final role, you know, is more than worth the price of admission. I know, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Now, yeah. now, will Absolutely. either of you be? Because Randall mentioned the film is uh, let's see, it's opening this Friday. It's going to be in St. Louis. Is anybody go since that's where you shot? Will either of you be there for the opening on Friday? Yeah, I will be. Actually, it's, it's on Thursday. Um, Thursday night. Friday, Thursday night. Yeah, that's actually Pam Greer is opening the film. She will be there in person, and I will be there with her and a few of the other actors. But um, Randall, I don't know. Uh, did you say you were coming, or, or you can't? No, I can't. Sadly, I can't make it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna be in L.A. for the L.A. opening on the 10th. Oh, how okay, perfect! So awesome. you guys got everything covered. Do you know where it's gonna open on the 10th in L.A., Randall? Uh, at the Lemley, the Music Box, same oh. theater that 37. Okay. Opened. Well, then everybody, anybody that wants to see Randall in Bad Grandmas in L.A. Lemley Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills on the 10th. If you're in St. Louis, Premier Srikant and Pam Greer will be there. And this is a film that everybody needs to see just because it will make you laugh and it will make you forget everything else in the world. And it's a little indie film and it needs lots and lots of love. That's right. Thank you so much, Debbie Lynn. Thank you. Gentlemen, thank you. you. And again... Randall and I are teaming up. He's going to give away 37 copies of his film, 37, that he directed and stars in. And we're going to have, I'm going to have all that information out. You can go to BTL Radio Show or Movie Shark D on Twitter and win a copy. So I know you will both come back on the show again. Yes? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and of I, course. And I want my <laughs> sequel, Srikant. I want my sequel. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to oh, you thank soon. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Right, thanks, listeners. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye, Shrikant. Bye. And that was Randall Battenkoff and Srikant Chalapa, Srikant writer, co-writer, and director of Bad Grandmas. Randall stars in Bad Grandmas. Now we got an impromptu giveaway thanks to Randall of his film Thirty Seven. So, again, if you want to win copies of that, just retweet about listening to Randall on Behind the Lens today, BTL Radio Show or Movie Shark D on Twitter, and we'll get in touch and get you copies. So, that's all the time we have. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 